welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, this is our 111th episode. So yeah, over the last couple of years, we started in 2019. Uh, well, wouldn't you give anything to go back to 2019? Ammo availability, low prices, no masks, Trump was president. All those things were just, we don't know how good we had it. We just don't know how good we had it. But this is the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, there's some hard truths out there, very hard truths. And as always, if you have a question or comment, you can email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. Or leave it in the comments section on Podbean and I'll run across it and uh, answer it in the next podcast. So that's how you can contact us. And, uh, you know, don't hesitate. We're always happy to answer your questions and uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to help people out. So don't hesitate. Drop us a line. Okay, obviously the elephant in everybody's room, the elephant on the world, the elephant everywhere is the Afghanistan debacle. And, you know, I just don't even know where to start with this. Um, You know, I said in the last podcast, the only way out of that Afghanistan situation that made any sense was to have the place become a UN mandate with a rotating UN security force in there to keep the Taliban away and kind of let the central government, you know, function. But basically, it's nothing more than just a kind of a big wasteland of, you know, feuding tribes, and that's all it's ever been, and that's all it ever will be. It won't be anything else. It can't be anything else. It just won't. But when you look at that, you can also look at responsible foreign policy. Spain uh, can think that what they've seen the last, well, seven months has been anything even close to responsible foreign policy as conducted by a nation. It's a bungling, foolhardy, uh, virtue signaling, and, and basically SJW um, kind of agenda that has been meshed into everything from the military to our foreign policy to you know everything else even COVID policy it's been meshed into and that's why we have a mess on our hands everywhere you turn it's a mess you know the Democrats were supposed to be the return to normalcy and put the adults back in charge they're hapless they're absolutely worthless and hapless and then, you know, the other the other people who are worthless and hap- hapless are the General Millies of the world, the Lloyd Austin, who is a, uh, the Secretary of State, no, Secretary of Defense, who is a four-star general. He's an idiot. Millie's an idiot. We have four-star idiots. Again, um, these people can't beat a 12th century tribal force with cast off weapons and you know I realize it goes back over 20 years and it talked we talked about ownership and everything this is a disgrace this is an absolute horrid disgrace 
and to say it's a stain upon national honor is is really one of the biggest understatements you can make just over a hundred years ago in 1914 we all the United States almost went to war with Mexico because they wouldn't render the proper honors to our flag when we were entering one of their um, entering one of their ports it was Veracruz <clears throat> and that created a big that was a big diplomatic faux pas that was considered a giant insult and uh, almost went to war over that and um, you know here we are with this nonsense that has gone on I mean, I mean it's just too much to catalog the lack of military planning listening to four-star generals talk about how they're cooperating with the Taliban they've even given the Taliban sensitive intelligence lists of American citizens and probably other people who they wanted to get through the checkpoints biometric data everything else and then we wonder why reports are coming out of Kabul that uh, that all of a sudden the Taliban is going house to house and killing people who cooperated with the US and NATO forces they wonder why that is they can't possibly be that stupid they can't possibly be that naive and yet they are um, people with just a modicum of military training could understand how that happened and you know we got here we got here a long it took a long road to get here uh, refusing to call the enemy the enemy you know you never hear the Taliban called the enemy in World War II there was us and there was the enemy and we had to defeat the enemy and we did what it took now we talk about them like well it's just like a football game between Chicago and Detroit or something um, it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous they aren't doing the kind of operations they didn't send the kind of forces there that can crush these these creeps it's it's mind-boggling that they just thought they could just kind of garrison the country and and sort of fight them like the Indians I guess and there was absolutely no no strategy why do we have all these high-tech weapons if they don't work I mean <laughs> you know when 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 uh, sleepy Joe Biden said hey if you want to take on the US government you'll need nukes and f-15s I guess not now I guess you could just be like the Taliban and I guess you know you you'll inherit enough rifles and other things so that you know you don't need to have f-15s and the enemy will, your enemy will give them to you I guess that's what the I guess that's what the lesson is I, I don't know that there's a lesson the lesson that I take from it is our leaders are cowardly feckless and they want to start these war of attrition operations and you're there for 10 years we're there for 20 years one of the things that no one really understands is the people who are Taliban today were children 20 years ago when we came there 
So how effective do you think any of our programs or anything that we did there was? There's overwhelming numbers of Taliban now, and they grew up under the shadow of the NATO coalition, which was largely us, but we had other members in there, so it, it would look legit, you know, it would look, look more like a coalition operation. But these Taliban, you say, you know, the, the life, ex I, I got to tell you, life expectancy in Afghanistan is not that long because there is no real medical care, especially outside of any kind of towns. It's probably rudimentary in towns, but not existent out of town. So for somebody to live past 40, and then, you know, there are some of these old coots, you know, look like they've been out in the desert for 100 years, but, um, you know, living past 40 is probably pushing it that's probably going against the statistic so I, I would sit there and say anybody who is in their 20s now or is a Taliban fighter now is in their 20s maybe their early 30s and they were children some of them probably weren't even born when we got into the country ones that are say under 20 years old it's insanity it's insanity that we could not defeat the Taliban. Militarily, we could not defeat the Taliban. And we kept getting lied to by people telling us, oh, these guys are great. You know, they're going to be able to defend themselves. We just need to work with them a little bit longer. And, you know, humma, humma, humma. It happened, happened, happened. I can tell you, I never believed that. And here's why. You take a civilian who's 18 years old, whether he's an American, whether he's afghan or whether he's from anywhere in the world you take an 18 year old it's probably going to take you six to eight months to get him through some sort of basic military training and give him training in some sort of military occupation so that he's a useful soldier it's just going to take that long uh, some countries can probably compress it but you know face it it's going to take you about 18 months before this guy's really out there kicking butt doing the job and so you add say special operations training on top of that you're talking another year another 18 months so in in three years you should have built a proficient and effective special operations force at least a direct action one one that can go in kill the bad guys and do it and that's that's if they train hard do their rehearsals and all that so we got there in 2002 so by 2005 2006 we knew we knew these guys were bums we knew afghans weren't going to cut it we knew that 2006 that's 15 years ago uh, we probably knew that they couldn't figure out you can teach them how to fly a plane, but you can't teach enough of them how to fix it or keep it going. Um, you know, it's a it's a no-win. And we knew years ago it was no-win. Same thing. How, how long does it take to train a pilot? Well, you figure take a guy who's about 22, and you figure it takes him probably two years to learn. So we should have known that there was going to be no Afghan Air Force certainly by 2007 2008 we knew we weren't going to have good special operations units and we weren't going to have an air force and since they're landlocked thank god we didn't even have to worry about a navy i mean and this happens 
this happens in a lot of places and a lot around the world there i know guys who went to south america central and south america it's central america really and they would go and they would work with some of these local military units you know and they would set up a special boat squadron and they'd get this thing and it would be rolling it'd be good after about a year man these things are these guys are good they're proficient they're doing their job they go down a year and a half later and the boats are all you know half sinking no maintenance on them there's nobody left in the unit who was there when they trained them everybody's moved on and the, and the unit doesn't do any missions i mean it's you know there are some people they they've got to have you can train them and equip them all you want but that does not ensure success have the internal drive and desire to be successful and if they don't then it's just not going to happen it's going to be the boats in south america it's going to be the afghan army and the afghan special forces and the afghan air force that's what you're going to have and that's just that's just what it is so you know we should have known a whole lot earlier that a central and unified afghan government was not going to make, make it or or be anything viable so we have that then we have what the biggest the biggest problem is the american public and the american public after a certain period of time just became disengaged and afghanistan even now even with all this bungling it's not really on a lot of people's radar screen i would tell you there would be greater outrage if the taliban came over and assassinated an nfl quarterback or some other sports or popular culture you know kind of kind of famous person if that happened people would be willing to go to war they would be enraged they would absolutely to the bottoms of, the, of their souls be enraged but as long as the taliban's not called the enemy as long as we don't tell people hey we're in a war and we're in it to win as opposed to some sort of marathon dance contest that lasted 20 years over there it's ridiculous and we don't have a president of the united states that understands his job that understands anything i mean if you're going to steal an election at least do the job at least try to do the job but we don't seem to get that either and so there we have it the adults are back in charge and um, frankly it doesn't look very good at this point another uh, aspect of having the adults back in charge was the ammunition ban from russia okay um that was announced i guess it was over a week ago and you know i we, we've kind of gone over it it's been gone over on the news the the only heartening thing about this is is that number one some production of ammunition will have to be decentralized you know we, we may have to make it here we were for a while making it was stuff called wind steel ammunition it wasn't very good but at least it was you know it was the same kind of steel cased uh, cheap bullet kind of low energy ammunition and in it worked in most guns it, it actually would not work in one of my browning high powers which i found was strange very strange indeed because those will usually gobble up everything but that kind of ammo is made on on the margin if they can reduce the powder charge a tenth of a grain if they can use a little bit less jacket material when you 
when you basically um, transfer those savings over tens of millions of rounds, they save quite a bit of money. So uh, that's why that total ammo and all this really, a lot of the stuff out of Russia kind of underperforms because it's it's made. They cut back the powder charge as much as they can. They cut back the, uh, the some of the other materials as much as they can because those add up to big savings. Some of this will be decentralized and some of it already is. I did not know that Red Army standard ammunition for the most part is made in uh, Romania and Poland. So right away that that tells you that while 545 by 45 might get more expensive it should still be available in the uh, military ball steel case configuration um, and that's not including if a few American manufacturers decide to get on the uh, bandwagon and make some brass case stuff so you know it, it, it'll all unfold over time but we'll see how it happens I just hope that the hoarding and panic buying doesn't wreck this too although human nature kind of tells me that it probably probably will uh let's get to more more gun stuff and more things that are actually more interesting um you know for since 2019 i haven't done any kind of real rifle shooting i mean just uh, a few 300 yard military rifle matches and you know kind of doing that and my club is kind of limited the 300 yards it it has the capability to expand ranges, but a lot of things have to be done in order to make that happen. And uh, the stars usually don't align, so there, there you are. Um, but on the land that I have, I can shoot out to 400 yards, you know, very easily. I could shoot farther if I wanted to, uh, involving neighbor's property, but um, just keeping everything on my property, I can shoot it dead on 400 yards. Now, a lot of people don't think that that's very much. And when you talk to extended long-range people, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a joke. When you talk to PRS people, I think they, they routinely shoot at that distance and then at greater distances. Even NRA calls, what is it, 300 to 600, they call that mid-range. But for most people, most riflemen, anything beyond 300 yards is realized for 300 yards and in. They just are, um, and we can go into that later. The other thing is most cartridges, if you sight in at 200 yards, yeah, you're a couple inches, usually a couple inches low at 100, you're on at 200, and then you're a few inches low at 300. So you, you have that cone, and when you're shooting at a game animal, okay, does it really matter if the bullet's gonna land three or four inches lower? Well. You might compensate for that but but actually you you probably don't even need to if you get a good shoulder shot it's it's going to go right in the right in the bread basket there so um most people just sight in at 200 yards and then never fool with their sights and they can hit usually 300 and they can usually hit at 100. so you get beyond that and then you have to start saying okay how do you use the the rifle and what are the attributes of a rifle you need to use for for some time i i never understood this growing up to me a rifle was a rifle and you know i couldn't understand why a remington 700 adl just didn't perform really very well beyond 200 yards it really doesn't 
and as soon as it starts to get warm um, it, it does it it fails to hold a zero and all these other things that's because it's a hunting rifle and it's designed to be carried and shot once or twice not shot 15 times from a bench and the other thing is given the technology of most hunting rifles they're not really free floated they're on and as our society gets more into polymers and cheaper materials um, you know there you go the stocks are are getting cheaper and, and things like this so hunting rifles 300 meters and in to go out beyond that you really need um, optics that are suited to do that a rifle that's suited to do that and a cartridge that is uh, suited to do that and one of the one of the latest ones and and it kind of sparks debate um, is the 6.5 Creedmoor and obviously you know cartridges in that class I, I'm not that kind of that performance envelope that are that are actually very good cartridges they really are and they can they can really deliver good performance in that 300 to 1000 yard and sometimes even a little bit beyond range um, I hadn't touched my 6.5 Creedmoor since 2019 um, I picked it up and it was awesome I knew it was zeroed at, at 300 yards so I just added the uh, made the mill correction I, I first I I um, put a target about 12 inches by 12 inches out at 300 and I I hit it every time as a matter of fact it was it was child's play um, now again this is not a rifle you shoot offhand that you either shoot it off the bipod or off or some sort of a rest on a bench and uh, you know with that Athlon Argos BTR scope you set a 20 power yeah I mean it was easy to see easy to hit no no not really hard um, moved to 400 put the elevation adjustment on it and it was just as easy to hit um, it's pretty nice pretty nice and um, one thing I did find moving from 300 to 400 yard I probably have a one-tenth of a mil correction to make in windage so there you go but it was still shooting about at 400 yards my estimate is it was shooting a legit four inch group this is a savage um model 12 rifle with a 26 inch barrel 6.5 creedmoor accutrigger on a um bell and carlson medalist stock with uh badger ordnance mountain rings and an athlon argos btr scope not an expensive scope but you know the quality of it really and i'm sure that if you put it next to a two thousand dollar scope it, it you'll see a measurable difference but at 400 yards and I, I was shooting at this target that had some writing on it and i could see letters i couldn't quite read you know to be the honest thing is i couldn't read what it said and these 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 were about one inch to one and a half inch tall letters I couldn't read the words but I could see the writing and uh, maybe if I'd played a little more with a parallax adjustment or something I might have might have gotten closer but um, you know I could see the writing I mean how good does it have to be it, it doesn't have to be perfect that's one of the things they found out in these precision 
the PRS scopes is that field of view was more important than clarity. Clarity was nice, but it wasn't as, as essential as um, some of the other attributes you have on the scope. And I've never fired this one far enough to have to use the Christmas tree subtensions and the reticle or, or any of that. And, and fortunately, kind of both places where I shoot, um, wind is not much of a factor. So um, I don't have to make those hard wind calls. The difficult part about wind is, at least where I am, is it's never quite consistent. It's really more gusty than, say, a continuous 5 miles an hour or 10 miles an hour. <laughs> it's usually a gust and then it's calm. A gust and then it's calm. So, um, you know, I just kind of wait for the calms, to be honest with you, um, because a gust is its usually by the time you even if you're really good at those kind of doing the calculation and the correction, uh, then it's over, you know, and you're shooting in the lull anyway. So I usually just kind of wait. But, you know, you you can always learn something. And sometimes you learn what a good job you did. I, I think I did well in choosing that platform. I, like everything else, I, I, I've got a budget. I just can't, I just can't willy-nilly... Uh, go out and, and just drop tons of cash I have to research everything I do carefully and most of the time not every time but most of the time that works out pretty well I was gonna build an f-class rifle out of uh, out of an m1a I, I, I put it all together and it really didn't work out as well as I thought it would um, you know you, you you live and you learn some some rifles are more much more difficult to scope than others even if it looks super cool and everything else it's a um, it's it's basically you know difficult to mount a scope to an M14 or even an M1 Garand for that matter those are those are really in in just my opinion um, their their natural place to be is with iron sights and iron sights are still awesome they're still awesome you know, it's 100-year-old technology that really, uh, it still works and still works well. Yeah, my next project. Years ago, uh, Lee, you know, they make the aluminum molds. That, not that expensive. But Lee made a 208-grain, 44-caliber wad cutter mold. They had it in their catalog for years. Um... I finally bought one and, and you know it's it's Lee molds are 20 to 30 dollars you know so it's not a tremendous expenditure then they stopped making them and they actually made a custom run for the people on the cast bullets uh, forum which is a good place to go if you need information on bullet casting and and shooting cast bullets they actually made a special run of them but I, I bought one of the originals and um, I've never used it uh, I've, it's just one of those things I just haven't got around to doing and uh, well I can tell you I, I started shooting small bore pistol um, what is now called precision pistol back in the early 2000s and I never got around to using this thing because I wasn't shooting center fire as much and I wasn't shooting that kind so but I've always been curious because 38 wad cutters usually shoot pretty well out of a 357 
revolver and they shoot exceptionally well out of a 38 revolver for the most part they they really do they're really made for accuracy it, again it's old technology that that freaking works great it absolutely works great so as a matter of fact one of the best deals i ever got i was actually overseas at the time and midway had a sale and it was for like 150 bucks you could get 3000 38 wad cutter bullets and so i bought it you know i bought it and of course this thing weighed a ton you know the the box when my stepson had to you know haul it from the post office to the uh to the house he wasn't very happy with that but you know the 3000 bullets lasted me a long time i'm just finishing up the last of them now um and actually i would have more but but my wife shoots a um Colt 38 Diamondback and she likes the wad cutter loads because of the low recoil out of that so if she hadn't been shooting she's probably shot a you know, few hundred anyway uh, I would have even more but yeah I'm running out of those so I'm gonna have to cast more 38 wad cutter bullets but they're so good in a 38 special I'm just wondering how good a 44 wad cutter is gonna be in a 44 special or a 44 magnum um, with a 44 magnum you have the you probably have the luxury of seating the bullet out a little bit farther um, you don't not necessary though and you could load it in a magnum case as a full wad cutter or you could load it in a special case um, be kind of interesting to test it'll be interesting to play around I don't know that anybody's really done that with 44 it's uh, um, a challenging a challenging thing I, I think that a you know there's there's two ways to go with powder you can go with like the uh, 231 HP 38 route you could go unique or you could go trail boss and the interesting thing with trail boss is trail boss I never I never paid much much attention to it I, I thought it was just some cowboy action BS thing um, but actually it turns out very accurate loads in in the right guns I mean a lot of times people are shooting it in the old single actions and and face it it's speed and and all the rest of it I think one of the things trail boss does is it uses up a lot of the case so there's not a lot of extra air in the case and so it's a little bit more consistent and I think I just think that's what it is and alas I'm gonna have to go find some trail boss because the last of it I had I used to make 45 auto rim hand loads for my Webley so um, you know it's a great powder for that too you know most of the Webleys you find have been shaved for 45 ACP 40 real 45 ACP the 230 grain FMJ or equivalent hand loads is really a little a little too much for that gun so I, I like to shoot and I've had mine shoot it shoots everything down to 185s to uh, I'm gonna try some 260s here later and I think trail boss is probably the powder for that uh, probably the powder so it'll be a very interesting a very interesting gun to uh, to use so we'll see how it uh, we'll see how it shakes out I'd love to shoot it out at um, the James farm the birthplace of the outlaw Jesse James and 
well, his cousin was his his brother wasn't born there, but they actually are distant cousins of mine. So, I'd like to go out there and actually shoot a Webley in uh, one of the matches out there. I think that'd be a lot of fun. But the forty-four wad cutter may be the may be the bullet. It may be the bullet um, that I could use in forty-four special and forty-four mag, and um, use the forty-five auto rim. The semi wad cutter is a great bullet. Uh, for target out there for 200 the 200 grain bullet makes a nice webley load if you load that to 45 acp specs it's it's a nice mild load easy on the revolver and and very accurate a lot of fun so that's the uh that's the projects that are going on this time and i'll i have to get around to them but i'll let you know how they uh how they work out still going to shoot the creed more hopefully get a little better with it uh I've, although I think a four-inch group at 400 yards is is pretty awesome, certainly exceeded my expectations, and um, who knows, maybe even uh, 100 yards and see how that works. The uh, next thing is the 44 um, caliber wad cutter, using that in special and magnum revolvers. So we'll see where those both go. All right, let's get to my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers and the first question we have is are long arms better for home defense and i guess the implication is are long arms better for home defense than handguns um i consider long arms to be shotguns and rifles and um and i think i don't think he means um long arms are better for home defense than rubber band guns or squirt guns so i'm sure he means firearm handguns my view on it is, um, well, there's a lot of aspects to this question. And, uh, you know, it, it's you can give some simplistic answers. I would say you have to look at the environment you're in. Uh, when you're out in the country and you're maybe a mile, maybe two miles or half mile away from your closest neighbor and you hear something going on outside, uh, a long arm is a really excellent thing to have really excellent and by something going on could be animals could be people poking around your place could be anything you know uh, a long arm is is really a good weapon to have for that if you're in the suburbs or the city and you're going to be basically inside your house a long arm is okay but it does have some drawbacks. Uh, number one is it's it's longer, so if somebody gets to jump on you, they they grab. Can they twist the gun away from you? Um, I'm pretty big, so I'm I'm not real easy to twist a gun away from. But a spouse might be smaller and may not have the upper body strength I do, or or my mean personality where I'll just wait till the you know, I'll twist the barrel back at him and pull the trigger about three times and, and end the thing. So, um, a long arm can be, in some cases, seized. And if you're telling somebody to hold up in a room, a long arm is, is good. Like, hey, you just stay in that room, you, you cock that rifle or shotgun and go. But the advantages of a handgun are there are a lot of times. And when I'm, when I'm in kind of the small town I live in, um, you know, it's, it's, it's populated 
And one time, one time, very early in the morning, somebody's pounding away at my door in a kind of an unfriendly way. So I have a gun, I come downstairs, and I can see through the outside that all of a sudden it's a policeman. So it's a police officer. So it was very easy for me to stash the gun, and then I go and I answer the door, and I don't, I don't have it in my hands. Um, had he been looking in and seen me with a long arm, that could have turned into a very ugly, ugly situation. Um, you know, I, I don't really want to brandish a, um, or have a, have a long arm in my hands when there's a law enforcement guy who's, who's trying to do his job right out there. As it turns out, he'd, he'd heard some, uh, I think it was they they thought someone was in distress out on the street and wanted to know if we heard anything. It wasn't it wasn't that deal, but you know, hey, the guy was the guy was, you know, pounding on the door um pretty aggressively. Another time uh I heard somebody walking around on my deck and there was nobody authorized to do that. I had a handgun and again another police officer, a female police officer is out there. I stash the gun, I go out and I ask politely, hey, what are you kind of what are you doing? And cases the cat up on our place and it hides under the deck and you know, yada yada. Uh, that's not also a situation where you want to come, you know, out the door with, with a weapon. What is the police officer gonna think? Uh, there are other situations where it may be somebody you know or it may be somebody in distress and they're they're trying to get some some help and you have to make make up your mind as to whether or not that's genuinely the case and, and it's not a ruse but um, there's a lot of times where you don't really want to answer the door with a long arm in your hand number one um, you know it's 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 clumsy and awkward um, to do that and number two it, it, it really sends the wrong message so a handgun can really make sense in a situation where you need to be discreetly armed and you know you need a, you might need a weapon and you, but you need to be discreetly armed it's it's a very good it's a very good solution it's also one that can be right next to concealed next to your bed space and they make all kinds of cute little little uh, finger print recognition safes and other things where you put your hand on it it recognizes your hand it pops open and there's your handgun uh, those are those are very very good measures if you have children in the house or something something on that nature so a handgun makes very good sense from that perspective uh, having a weapon you know bringing the gun to a gunfight is sometimes more important than which one you bring to a gunfight but uh, you know those are all good those are all very very good uh, reasons to have both a handgun and a long arm and uh, you know the pistol caliber carbine if you're going for a long arm, I, I'm not a 5.56 fan indoors. Um, that's that's probably just not going to work out well for anybody. Um, I, I believe pistol caliber carbine is a really good option, and the beautiful part of that is uh, you can get pistol caliber carbines that don't look very menacing. Uh, There's still a firearm, but you can get the lever action ones, which are, you know have a whole new whole different connotation to them than would say um, something built on an AR or an AK not that there's anything wrong with that because I, I don't believe there is but you know a lot of people are a lot more comfortable 
with the lever action pistol caliber carbine, you know, seeing all the westerns and everything. So I, I'd say it, you know, it depends on you and it depends on what your situation is. And uh, I would definitely, I would definitely consider having a mix. If, if, if it's, you know, most of the time in the house, it's you and your spouse, one of you should have a handgun, one of you should have a long gun. I mean, there's just no two ways. And perhaps, you know, you have one of each and, and you can kind of choose what you need to do with it. So anyway, that's that's my view that basically a mix is a good thing. And but there are certain there are certain times if you live in an apartment, you know, a handgun makes a lot more sense for a lot of reasons. If you're in an apartment, than if you're uh, um, using a long gun, just the distances and the fact that you might have occupied dwellings to either side of you and above and below you um, definitely uh, definitely want to have a handgun in, in a situation like that all right next question body armor what is its practical use in a previous podcast you said that body armor you probably wouldn't have it if you needed it what did you mean by this well, I was kind of joking around. I like a lot of things, like a lot of things. Um, you may not have all this stuff that you have planned to have and think is is essential when it actually goes down. Um, it's not like you're always going to get a warning. And I can tell you, most most people, you know, if you're in the military and you're going out on an operation, hey, you're wearing all that stuff. You know, you wear it. But you don't wear it 24-7. Um, you don't start your deployment in Iraq. I would say Afghanistan, but that's just too that's just too soon right now. But you don't go to your, your deployment that you're going to be for a year and wear that thing 24-7. You just don't. It's not a part normally of your daily uniform. When you're kind of in the safety of the base, you normally don't have to wear that stuff. So so there you are. Um, it's a good deal. And, you know, it's not a superhero suit either. Um, you can't just put this on and say, now I'm invulnerable to bullets. Because um, that's not the case. All it's doing is protecting that vital core of your body as well as it can and give you some mobility so a lot of people aren't going to take the trade-off of wearing that thing 24 7 you just first of all I don't think you can do it second of all I don't know that you're I don't know how well you'll be <laughs> you'll be walking with a definite stoop if you tried to wear it 24 7 for a year or whatever whatever it is but you know it's worth having um, especially if you're in a situation where hey things are getting worse and you can hear you can hear violence and things happening like we saw last summer like we saw last summer that all of a sudden the violence is moving towards you or there's a threat that they're going to come come at you uh you can definitely um you know have that stuff ready and put it on but you know there's also a chance that you have to accept that you will have all this great body armor stuff but when you actually are in the middle of a situation it may not be readily available next to you and, and on your body the way you had envisioned. Our next question is are lasers useful on handguns and long guns such as rifles and shotguns? 
And the answer is, I'm not a huge laser fan. I mean, those things were very popular for about 15 years, and then I don't even see them around anymore. I mean, got to be at the point where um, you could buy them in Walmart. You know, they had the they had the lasers you could buy in Walmart for about 30 bucks and put on. And and of course now, almost all pistols have some sort of goofy rail up on the front of the the frame so you can put on either a light which is not a bad idea or a or a laser my problem with the laser was during the day they're impossible to see so what good are they at night they do have an intimidation value uh, i actually have one on my home defense shotgun simply because i think it it does have an intimidation deal you put that the guy sees the red spot in the center of his chest he might act differently than if he doesn't see it but i i don't really like chasing the uh chasing the dot around and and look trying to look for it i understand that you know i know the military ones the infrared lasers you know that you can see through your night vision devices they have but there are invisible to the naked eye that those are actually quite excellent and uh would in point of fact have some use because it would kind of show you what who's aiming at what or you could I you could pinpoint a target for somebody else or, or there's there's a bunch of uses I'm sure that they have but for the actual you know homeowner and and the worst ones were the pistol grips that had the uh, laser in it I mean who wants that I mean <laughs> who wants that those those things were kind of a joke I mean kind of faddish what they found with lasers and, and I still believe this to be true, is that if you bring the gun up and you, you line up the sights and squeeze, you're faster than if you bring the gun up and then you're looking over the top of the gun on the target or perhaps past the target for the laser dot and, and kind of trying to swing it around and do it. That, that takes a lot longer. That takes a lot longer. So they, they seemed like a good idea at the time, but I think their, their day is past. You won't really see lasers on uh, pistols anymore I, I just i think that by and large they're gone now and another four or five years they're completely gone completely gone a light on a pistol especially for a policeman is is not a bad thing because they can always be going into an alley or some dark place and they need to illuminate so i think that they're they're actually a quite a good thing for that um Again, I'm not real sure that I want to, you know, say for every homeowner that it's a great idea. I think the if you're going through your house with a flashlight on your gun, you might not be using light to your best advantage. You're probably better off turning on all the lights, and that way... Um, you know, it's you're gonna you're gonna be able to see a lot more than if you have to uh, move your flashlight around to check a whole bunch of different areas. If the light's on and you can see a whole room, that's gonna be a lot easier than pointing it around to illuminate behind the behind the bookshelf or in the you know who's in the open closet. You know what the what the deal is. All right, our next question, and this came. This came as a result of a match we had. 
What is the best World War II era bolt action rifle? Okay, for my money, the uh, best World War II bolt action is the O3A3 Springfield. It's got great adjust fully adjustable sights, windage and elevation. Uh, has a narrow front blade, but you know that's that's reason it's reasonable. Uh, but you know having fully adjustable sights is really a nice feature to have, and it's an aperture sight, so. Um, I think it's that's that's clearly the winner. The uh, the next best one is actually a World War One rifle, which is the U.S. Model 1917. Not fully adjustable, but it does have great aperture sights. The 1903 Springfield has got a little bit harder to see sights. It's a good rifle though, and it uh, but the sight is a lot farther forward on the barrel, and it's harder to see. Uh, then, then beyond that, I go to the Enfields. They all have pretty, they have decent sights. They're they're not fully adjustable, but they're decent. The bottom of the pile is the Mausers, even though I there are some Mausers I really think are very very cool. But I think as a class, I think their sights are probably probably not nearly as good as anybody else's. That's just the way it goes. For a rifle that's so venerated, it, it really, the sighting system on the Mauser is, to my mind, particularly unimpressive. All right, next question. On scopes, are lighted reticles useful? And how are they useful? Uh, in my opinion, lighted reticles are only, and I'm not talking about red dots or green dots. Um, but in my mind, a lighted reticle is only worth anything during that time between sunset and EENT, ending of evening nautical twilight. That's after the sun's gone down and it's still light out. It's not dark yet. Then it eventually becomes dark. That's actually kind of a, mili a term the military uses. That band of, of light in there after sunset for complete darkness. A lighted reticle is very, very useful in that. Conversely, when it starts to get light in the morning, but, but the sun has not ridden, that's BMMT. That is beginning morning nautical twilight. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the, uh, the other side of the coin. It gets lighter, it, it starts out dark, and then it starts getting lighter and then finally you hit sunrise. Well, in that period, a lighted reticle is very good on both of those. Uh, during the day, I find that they're very hard to see. So I'm, you know, trying it. Um, you, you could say that, you know, there are times when you can get very, very dark clouds, like, you know, storm clouds and things actually make, um, you know, make it very, very difficult to see a reticle. Uh, that, that's a very rare situation but it, it can happen where it's you know it's dark enough so that you can uh, you can use a lighted reticle um, but that's where they're useful they, they're not night vision it doesn't make you see things and anything you you know if, it doesn't matter what you see if you can't see anything through the scope except black but you can see the reticle that probably does not help you engage a target if you can't see it but during those times where it's dark and getting it's it's sun is set and it's getting darker or the sun has not risen yet but it's getting a little lighter 
during those two bands, a lighted reticle can really, uh, really come in and, and be uh, uh, something very cool. And you don't see them a lot on top end scopes. You see them a lot on the kind of the less expensive uh, scopes and some sometimes just the joke scopes that are out there you know the uh, um, but you know you it's it's really kind of a nice feature it's really kind of a nice feature we had a match a few years ago can't have it anymore but it was a long range match and it started early in the morning it started before sunrise and it would end after sunrise just when it was getting dark as a matter of fact when we were clearing the range it was pitch not pitch dark but pitch dark pitch pitch dark so you know and on the the first few shots and the last few shots lighted reticle helped i saw a guy who basically had to it was one of those limit process of elimination matches where you start at say 300 yards and you keep moving back and when you miss you're out so a guy had hung through it all during the day and then had to drop out because he didn't have a lighted reticle and couldn't see just that's all it was he just could not see so he had to you know like the 1400 yard stage he just had to bow out had to tap out right there so having a lighted reticle would have would have kept him in for at least one more iteration all right this is this is a great question how can you still cling to a hundred year old 1911 design when there are much better options for fighting handguns today you know and that's a fair question it's a it's a good question i like it um you know i've i said it i said it kind of the last i can't remember the last podcast or the one before human hand has not changed in a hundred years okay john browning was a genius he designed a pistol that fits the hand very well at least it fits my hand feels good in it um what i want a defensive pistol for is probably going to be up close personal you know with certainly within five yards and i want the heaviest bullet i can launch i want to and I also want the largest diameter bullet I can launch because if it tears a hole, tears a bigger hole, does more damage and stops them, so much the better for me. The 1911 did that then, it does that now. Um, I understand that police might have a different, a completely different situation where they say, hey, I need that 19 shots because I might be out there alone and there could be three gunmen who are robbing a bank and you know i'm there engaging them with all i have is my sidearm a 1911 with a seven or eight shot capacity may not be the choice he wants he may want that nine millimeter that's got even nowadays they're up to like 19 shots you know uh with the, the little things they can put on the bottom of a magazine i understand that that's that's totally good i also understand somebody who says you know i want a gun that i can basically not have to do any maintenance on and it's going to shoot and that's that's fine too there are a lot of guns on the market that purport to be like that so i i i totally get that but for my mind i i like a gun that balances well i like a gun that fits my hand well i like a gun that's powerful and i like a gun that i have the confidence to hit with and those those are fulfilled for me by the 1911 so that's how i can cling to it okay 
do let's see I already kind of covered that do you have any tips for long-range shooting yeah I already covered those um, get a good gun the question is do you have any tips for long-range shooting yes I do um, basically get the the first thing you should look at is your scope and figure out what do you want to do what are the attributes you want because they're all over the place they're all over the place so figure out what you want to do um, and and choose an appropriate scope choose an appropriate rifle the rifle and the cartridge are actually kind of easy the scope is always hard most people choose the rifle the rifle and the cartridge and then they add the soap rings and mounds as an afterthought that's like well that's I'm gonna now you know that's and if they run to start running out of money that's where they start running out of money and that's kind of the, the almost the inverse of what they need to do uh, you need to look at the whole thing what the whole package is gonna cost plus any labor plus the bipod you know there are $300 bipods out there now so be very very scrupulous you almost have to do project management look at do a build sheet what do I want the gun to do research which cartridges which rifles can do it and then look at the appropriate scopes um, and you do that all basically in parallel because if you do it sequentially you'll spend all your money on the rifle and the scope you'll have to dig a lot deeper for but if you put put it together as kind of a build sheet you can you can do it so that would be my only those would be my only tips for long-range shooting um, another one is practice 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 um, let's see you know having the support equipment is very nice you know the the wind meters and all that I'm again I the wind doesn't really affect me and I don't shoot it insanely long ranges anyway but you know good binoculars and a good spotting scope are are nice to have uh, a nice shooting if you're if you're gonna shoot from a mat a really nice shooting mat all these things the better quality you buy and the ones that are suited to your types of shooting uh, are gonna make it a lot more pleasurable and nice nice um, experience so think about all that think about the rifle case think about all that good stuff and you should be uh, should be good to go so those are the only tips I can I can give and, and frankly uh, there's there are a lot of podcasts and other things around a lot of it is all centered on high dollar though you know uh, we're Americans we buy gear and we we think that it can't possibly be my fault that I can't hit the target it must be my gear so I will go buy better gear when in fact you know sometimes we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say hey it's me it's not the gun it's me and I have to practice more so be sure to build into your budget uh, the the types enough ammunition to practice because uh, precision rifle ammo whether it's extended long range PRS or even just long anything over 300 yards that's where you start seeing a big deal with ammo you know it's uh, uh, in the military rifle matches we see ball ammunition works pretty good at 300 yards it works really good at 200 works really good at 100 I mean 
but you start stretching it out and ball ammunition isn't doing the great job past 300 400 500 yards and I don't know that I'm sure people have done it but I don't know that ball ammunition at a thousand yards is even worth doing um, it is just a, a a bridge too far I mean so you have to have that precision ammunition and that precision ammunition costs costs money um, they've developed a lot of powders and a lot of good bullets you could do you could do 20 podcasts on all that stuff you have to learn the biggest the biggest tip I would give is something I did we had a guy at our local gun club he was actually the president and he was a he was a service rifle high power shooter okay well he got into long range extended long range shooting and he actually gave a class and his class was a day long and this guy was a scientist so he could explain explain this stuff much beyond uh, what you would think and I tell you it is a it is a revelation some of this stuff and a lot of the things we grew up believing like the 30 caliber 168 grain Sierra match bullet was the ultimate bullet turned out to be flat ass wrong flat ass wrong so I would say if you can take a class it doesn't have to be a shooting class where you go out and get embarrassed and and don't know what you're doing just take a class in the theory and the the information behind it and then you can decide that will help you form the kind of equipment that you that you want I mean I, I look at it this way the more knowledge you have the better choices you're gonna make and uh, you know when I was starting out <clears throat> I thought that I could convert a, a match M1A into a 500 yard F-class gun and it turned out to not, not to be the case an expensive lesson too <laughs> so didn't cost that much but it was you know you, 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 I put it all together I theorized it all out put it all together and it turned out it wasn't it didn't live up to my expectations um, my 6.5 Creedmoor I did the same thing only I had taken the class I had done a bunch of other things and uh, lo and behold I I I hit the nail on the head so uh, within my budget within what I could afford I got the optimal piece of equipment so anyway those are my tips and this concludes the 111th podcast of old school guns and remember you can always email me a question or a comment at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or you can put it on the comments selection of Podbean. I will run across it. I will see it. And we will answer it in the next podcast. And until then, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>